Mama's family, who won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about Greece. Greece is the word, is the word that we heard of. Greece it's got it's got groove, it's got feeling. It's got groove, it's got feeling. Hey, harkens back to that. last week's show with Mr. Gibb writing the yeah. song. I love that theme song. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. I don't know. I don't know. It's I don't, for something about it. I don't know if it was one of those I listened to it when I was super young and it was just indelible in my brain now. But it's like, groovy. It's a it groovy is. song. It doesn't really fit in with the 1950s aesthetic. Well, there's a few songs in there that don't, but that's fine. But I I looked at it as because the opening is cartoonish and the ending is the uh, the yearbook. So I looked at it as is like someone looking back at that time. So okay. it's like they're hearing music from the current time. We go back and we hear all the 50s stuff and then we come back. You know the the bookend. It works for me. Great. I justified it in my own head. All right. Jim. I like that you're creating your own universe within the Grease yes. universe. Uh, you know what's so crazy is this film has all of the trappings of the of the other yeah. three films that we yeah. covered. Whether it's uh, stars that are way too old to be playing <laughs> yes. The, yes. the characters that they are. A goofy plot that really Do- doesn't go anywhere. Doesn't have an ending. And, <laughs> and messy... Dance oh, sequences oh my God. that the are choreography all is just It's and, so funny watching the actors watch each other. Yes. On, it was like, come on. They all look like they're counting in their yeah. head. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, and four. The really weird thing is that like half of them were Broadway people. Yeah. Like they should be better than well, that. Well, it's like Kanicki, uh, Jeff Conway is so in balance. Like some of his dancing is yeah. really impressive. And what? then other yeah. other some of it is impressive. I I think there was a before he fell down and an after he fell down. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but mean, but some of it too also looks like he's just not in sync or whatever. But but the truth is like all of this stuff, everything that that set up all of these other yeah. musicals for failure. Right. This had all of those trappings, but through sheer charm of its stars. The, pa- the, the really music, good music. The music is so good. You know, and they had good singers singing the yeah, music. Yeah, And John Travolta, young young John Travolta, <sighs> is so charismatic yeah. and good yeah. looking. He just, like... He's really good in this movie. And extremely good in this yeah, movie. Yeah. And so is Olivia. Olivia Newton-John looks like she's having so much fun that, when I, she's singing. I think that is a big factor, yeah. is that it seems like, even though they're off and, like, the choreography isn't great... Uh, at the end of the day, they all look like they're having the best time. Yeah. In Xanadu, she doesn't look like she's having the best time in the world. No. She just Nobody kinda... was really certain of what they were doing in <laughs> no. Xanadu. Except except Gene Kelly. I think Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly, because he was a consummate pro. Yes. Uh, but, but every time she looks at him, she mugs at him, she mugs at the other people. Yeah. And you can just tell she's having a blast. And Stalker Channing. Is even though oh. she's like thirty something in this movie, like she looks younger yeah. than most of the others. She does actually, yeah. And she is just absolutely dynamite. I mean, she's, she's always so been a, she's a stellar yeah. talent. Yeah. yeah. But it's just somehow all of this, all of the goopy stuff that that marred all these other movies actually buoyed this movie, yeah. and yeah. somehow it became a hit. It's just it's huge it, hit. It's so appropriate that we're finishing the month with this movie because. It really, it even has a lot of the same cast as the other movies. Yeah. You know, or talent behind it. I mean, you know, yeah. Stickler, or, or what's his name? Stigwood. Stigwood. Yeah. You know, it's he did... Well, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he he did... Uh, Sergeant Peppers, Sergeant right? Peppers. And, and, and the funny thing is that Sergeant Peppers came out, like, 
I want to say like six, five weeks after this. No. So they were probably filming around the same time? Well, I think that maybe that had to do with the failure of Sgt. Pepper's is you have already a musical Grease that's taking over, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, honestly, if Grease came out and then it was huge. I mean, yeah. it was huge the first four weeks. Yeah. I mean, who would want to go see Sgt. Pepper's? Exactly, and I think they were probably thinking, well, we can ride the Grease train. Well, I, I mean, they were, they were I, I'm pretty sure that Grease was shot before Sgt. Pepper's. Because I think that I think I, I don't know the timelines between the two, but but they came out very close together, and 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 obviously one was a very bad failure. Well, yeah, I think they might have cannibalized. Yeah, who knows yeah. if Sergeant Pepper came out first? Maybe it would have done a little bit better. Maybe it would have done a little bit better. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, all right. Well, take yourself back to 1978. Ooh. Uh, April 2nd, Dallas debuts on CBS and gives birth to the modern-day primetime soap opera. Who killed JR? I don't know. I still don't remember. We talk about it like eight times, and I still don't remember. It was Charlie's Tilton's character. Some woman. Yeah. 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 Everybody uh, forgets that. <laughs> April 7th, U.S. President Jimmy Carter decides to postpone production of the Neutron Bomb, a weapon that kills people with radiation but leaves buildings relatively intact. And gives the Pointer Sisters yeah. an idea to write, to write a, a, song. a song. Pretty sure the Neutron Bomb is the epitome of capitalism. Sure. We're going to keep the buildings but kill the people. You got to do what you got to do. Uh, May 20th, Mavis Hutchinson, 53, becomes the first woman to run across the U.S. Her trek took 69 days. Who was chasing her? Uh, everybody. Mm, because good for her. women can't run, Jim. Wow. That's just what they were saying in 1978. Oh, okay. They were like, you can't do this. But she did it. And she ran from them as fast as she could. Well, way to go, Mavis. And you know what? Uh, on May 25th, 1978, everybody collectively decided never to use the name Mavis <laughs> for a child again. It's such it's yeah. so funny if you ever see like a Mavis or an Ethel. Yeah. It just seems like we, I've never seen like a child Mavis or Ethel. No, no. They're definitely not used at all anymore. Uh, it's a little, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then in June 16th, Grease is released in theaters. Grease is the word, is the word that you heard of. Uh, Grease started as a 1971 musical set in Chicago in 1959 with book storyline characters and lyrics by Jim Jacobs and music composed by Warren Casey. Jacobs and Casey both despised modern rock music like The Grateful Dead and Led Zeppelin and bonded over their love of doo-wop. Nerds. Yeah. Grease was first performed on February 5th, 1971 at Kingston Mines Nightclub in Chicago. The only cast member of note was Mary Lou Henner, who played Marty. Nice. Who had, went on to star in Taxi with yeah. Kanicki. Yeah. Uh, in addition to the R-rated profanity and deliberate use of shock value, the Chicago version of Grease included a substantially different songbook, which was shorter and included multiple references to real Chicago landmarks. Sweet. That version of the show ran for eight months. Producers Ken Weissman and Maxine Fox saw the show and made a deal to produce it off-Broadway. The team headed to New York City to collaborate on the New York production of Grease. It was after test runs of the original Chicago production had drawn extremely poor reviews that the production team transformed Grease into its more familiar form. All right, taking place in California. Yeah. Yeah. The new production, directed by Tom Moore and choreographed by Patricia Birch, who later choreographed the film adaptation and directed the ill-fated sequel, opened Off-Broadway at the Eden Theater in Lower Manhattan on February 14, 1972. Though Greece opened geographically off-Broadway, it did so under first-class Broadway contracts, so the show was deemed eligible for the 1972 Tony Awards, receiving seven Tony Award nominations. Not bad. I had no idea that it was a Tony Award-nominated 
or Tony, yeah, Tony nominated show. I had no idea. Really? Yeah. It's your favorite movie. My favorite musical. movie, not my favorite musical. <laughs> <laughs> the first Broadway production opened on June 7th, 1972. When it closed in 1980, Grease's 3,388 performance run was the longest yet in Broadway history, although it was surpassed by a chorus line on September 29th, 1983. It still remains Broadway's 16th longest running show. Ooh, you know, once you get past 10, it's not that impressive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's thousands of shows. It's very impressive. Yeah. Yeah, eight eight shows a week. It's it's hard. Uh, the original Broadway cast included Barry Bostwick as Danny, Carol Demas as Sandy, Adrian Barbeau as Rizzo, and Timothy Myers as Kanicki, with Alan Paul, Walter Bobby, and Maria Small in supporting roles. Replacements later in the run included Jeff Conaway as Danny, Candace Early as Sandy, John Lansing as Danny, Peter Gallagher as Danny, Richard Gere as Sonny, Eileen Graff as Sandy, Rendy Heller as Rizzo, Mary Lou Henner as Marty, Judy Kay as Rizzo, Marcia Mitzman Gavin as Rizzo, Patrick Swayze as Danny, John Travolta as Duty, <laughs> uh, Treat Williams as Danny, Laura Graff as Frenchie, and Jerry Zachs as Kaniki. There's a lot of pretty big names in there. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of people were in this. I mean, it ran for like eight years. Like a lot of people were in the run. Richard Gere. Yeah, that seems weird. Plain Sunny. It, it's it, Sunny, the character who just eats a sandwich the entire movie. Yeah, it's weird. Richard I, Gere doesn't seem like a Sunny. The the well, not for the movie. Yeah, I mean, but that's because the movie guys were so good at their parts. That's what I think of them as. Yeah. Sure. Well, you know, when you've been in the business for 40 years, <laughs> you learn a thing or two. Uh, enter St- Robert Stigwood, agent and producer. Stigwood expanded into film production in the early 70s with RSO Films. His first feature film was a hit screen adaptation of Jesus Christ Superstar in 1973, made in, associate, in association with its director, Norman Jewison. Jesus Christ Superstar, who in the hill do you think you are? He followed us with the film version of The Who's Tommy in 1975, which became one of the most successful films at the box office during its year of release. Good movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. Stigwood signed actor John Travolta to a million-dollar three-picture contract in 1976. Good for him. And that was, uh, I think he was 75 when he started uh, Welcome Back, Cotter? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that kid just... it went, He went from 75 to 79, yeah. He, starting with... Because I think Carrie was before. It was about the same time, right? Yeah, Carrie was 75. So it, he, he got Welcome Back. And I, I think I talked about this in a little bit. But he got Welcome Back, Cotter, and uh, Carrie around the same time. God, that guy just yeah. took off. Juggernaut City. Yeah, but he also, the other thing, too, and we'll talk about it more later, but, like, I didn't realize that he had a number one hit. Like, he was, had released a number one single. Really? I, yeah, John Travolta. <laughs> like, that's just yeah. weird to me. I, I mean, he's a singer. I know, dancer. I know. But, like, I don't, I, you know. Uh, anyway, many in the film industry were reportedly skeptical of Travolta because he was at that time known as a TV actor, but RSO Films' next production, Saturday Night Fever, made him a leading movie star. Yeah. In addition to developing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, Stigwood picked up the rights to Grease, the Broadway musical. Picking up Grease for production made sense to Stigwood with Travolta's contract, as Travolta had played Duty in the Broadway production and national tour of the musical. Duty. Duty. Uh, Bronte Woodward was hired to adapt the musical's book for film with heavy edits from Alan Carr, Hollywood superstar manager turned producer. Uh, Woodward is shrouded in a bit of mystery as they had never done any film work before the Grease assignment and would only write the Village People musical flop Can't Stop the Music in 1980 as their only other credit. Yeah, with the goot. The other thing, too, is that different sources claim that Bronte is a woman and different sources claim Bronte is a man. I like it. So I have no idea. Mystery. Uh, they died at the age of 39 from unknown causes in 1980. 
Probably from confusion. <laughs> Woodard received a screenplay by credit in, on Grease, while Alan Carr received an adaptation by credit, meaning Carr could prove significant contributions to the screenplay, but not enough by WGA standards to receive full screenplay by credit. Okay. Which, I, th- their stipulations for that stuff is just so ridiculous. Yeah, it's very technical. Yeah. In 1966, Carr founded the talent ag- agency Alan Carr Enterprises, managing the actors... Tony Curtis, Peter Sellers, Rosalind Russell, Diane Cannon, Melina McCoo, and Marla Thomas. Some of the other intimate figures whose careers he managed were Anne Margaret, a string of whose television specials he also produced, and... Nancy Walker, Marvin Hamlish, Joan Rivers, Peggy Lee, Cass Elliott, Paul Anka, Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, George Maharis, and Herb Alpert in the Two on a Brass. Oh, Herb Alpert. Yeah, baby. He's so good. Yeah, Spanish fly. <laughs> Carr is also credited for having discovered numerous celebrities, including some who also became his clients, such as... Mark Hamill, Michelle Pfeiffer, Steve Gutenberg, the Goot... And Lisa Hartman. Nice. Yes. He's had a... Alan Carr was a, had a big career. <laughs> yeah, man. From Peter Sellers to Mark Hamill. Yeah. Producer Robert Stigwood hired Carr in 1975 as marketing and promotion consultant, with his first project being for the film version of the rock opera Tommy. The film was a hit, and he expanded his involvement for his next film, re-editing and overdubbing a low-budget foreign film about a real-life disaster. Okay. The result was Survive, released in 1976. Oh, yeah. We talked about this before. The disaster in question was also described in Piers Paul Reed's book Alive, which was adapted into a feature in 1993. Uh, which was called Alive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the surprise box office success of Survive in 1976 made Carr a wealthy man and gave him clout at Paramount Pictures. So is that the same story of a plane crashing and them eating it's butt? It's based on the real, yeah. They're both based on the real event. Oh. But Survive I was uh, was not based off of the book that Alive was made off of. Okay. It was like a separate account. Okay. Yeah. In 1977, Stigwood asked him to produce the ad campaign for Saturday Night Fever, and he turned the film's premiere into a star-studded television special. Nice. It worked so well that Stigwood gave him Grease in 1978. Carr not only helmed the ad campaign and produced the premiere party and television special for Grease, but also co-produced the film for $6 million, casting his then-client... Olivia Newton-John. Nice. Yeah. Carr would go on to produce Can't Stop the Music in 1980, Grease 2 in 1982. Mm, with his other client, Michelle Fiverr. Yeah. Well, both of those were horrible flops. <laughs> Where the Boys Are, 84 in 1984, an update of the 1960 movie Where the Boys Are, and Cloak and Dagger in 1984. Nice. One of your faves. no idea he did Cloak and Dagger. Yeah. I love that movie so much. In 1989, Carr was asked to produce the 61st Academy Awards... It was a disaster, as he never hired a host and based the production around the musical review Beach Blanket Babylon, which had been running nonstop in San Francisco since 1974. Odd. The result was a complete disaster, and Carr received the majority of the blame for the show. Uh, He would never produce another film or TV show for the rest of his life. Wow, he blew it. Don't mess up the Oscars, baby. Nah. uh, Because that's everybody. (laughs) Everybody knows. (laughs) Like, you you can't hide that. He passed away in 1999 from liver cancer. Or shame. Well, yeah. It was about 10 years after that happened, but okay. this is sad. Shame festers at him. It does. It, it grows like a liver cancer. Yep. <laughs> Carr and Stigwood would hire Randall Kleiser to direct the film adaptation of Grease. Although this would be Kleiser's first feature film directing credit, he was a natural fit for Grease, as he had directed the TV movie The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, starring John Travolta in 1976. I gotta live in a bubble, because it's got no immunity, so I gotta live in a plastic bubble. All I think about is Seinfeld when I think I about the boy in the plastic bubble. Or that movie, Bubble Boy. with Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, wasn't it Gyllenhaal? Mm, Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal. Yeah. That was a fun movie. Yeah. Uh, this as, wasn't as fun. 
I remember watching this <laughs> TV movie. It's the moops. It was sad. <laughs> Sorry, I can't believe we'll plastic I, Yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it's not, it, it's on YouTube. I, I totally I, – I had it on while I was writing the script. So I'm, as a freshman at the University of Southern California, he appeared in George Lucas's student film Freyheit. Uh, Kleiser also lived at the house that Lucas was renting at the time. Hmm. Him and, and Lucas were close. He graduated in 1968. His award-winning master's thesis film, the 1973 short Peige, about a grandson's bond with his ailing grandmother, launched his career and was selected for preservation by the United States Library of Congress National Film Registry in 2007. Peige. Peige. He also directed an animated short that year called Foot Fetish, which was later aired on Saturday Night Live a decade later. Nice. Yeah. It was a sequel to Peach. <laughs> foot fetish. Yeah. Really. Peach 2, foot fetish. Well, the kid, he gets real close to his grandmother, yeah. but then realizes that even though she's really old, she's got some really nice-looking feet. I have, I have become weirdly obsessed with old fingers and, and hands. Mm. I, I, like, I, I don't want my hands to become old. No. It's then, weird. Then you might as well just die. Okay, well, Because it's going to happen. I know. It's just weird. I, I don't Anyway. No, it's not just your fingers, baby. I know, I know. It's just for some reason I've been obsessed about the fingers, old fingers lately. I don't know why. Well, a lot of those old fingers probably have arthritis. Uh, well, yeah. It's just the sh- they, they get weird shapes. Like, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Getting old sucks, Adam. Yeah, it does. A, it does. a lot of gross, weird things happen to you. <laughs> Kleiser directed the TV movie The Gathering, starring Ed Asner and Maureen Stapleton in 1977. It would win the Emmy for Outstanding Special Drama or Comedy and be nominated for four other Emmys that year. What was that about? Uh, it was a the gathering was Ed Asner was a grandpa who was dying of cancer oh, and he was yeah. trying to get his family together for one last Christmas. Ugh, they actually that. did a sequel to it without Ed, Ed Asner because he died right. in the movie and it was called like the Gathering Two Foot Fetish or something. I, I don't I don't know. After Greece, Kleiser would go on to direct The Blue Lagoon in 1980, starring Brooke Shields and Christopher Atkins, the story of two young children marooned on a tropical island paradise in the South Pacific, struggling with emotional and physical changes as they reach puberty, go skinny dipping in the ocean, and fall in love. Yeah, it's a weird movie. Um, it's a super weird movie. And Brooke Shields was way too young to be naked in that movie. Everybody was. Uh, so was Christopher Atkins. It's just, and man, Christopher Atkins just kind of disappeared yeah. after that. Yeah. Then they made the... The ripoff film Paradise with yeah. Willie Ames from oh. It Is Enough and uh, Phoebe Cates. Yeah. Exact well, yeah. same, pretty much exact, exact same story, same except story, it took yeah. place in the desert. But there were definitely places for them to skinny dip. <laughs> uh, Kleiser also directed Flight of the Navigator in 1986, which was the beginning of Kleiser's passion for new film technology. Flight of the Navigator is an underrated film. It's a pretty good was, little movie. It's the first movie to use 3D animated uh, CGI. Isn't that the one with Paul Rubens as the spaceship? Yeah, he does the voice for it, yeah. And the kid. I can't remember the kid uh, who's in it. It was uh, Barry Bostwick. No. No, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway. uh, Yeah, I'd fly the negative. I'm sure at some point we'll cover it. Uh, Big Top Pee-wee in 1988, uh, the sequel to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Also starring Paul Rubens, coincidentally. Yeah. I mean, that might be part of the reason. He had to audition for the role of Pee-wee, you know. Oh, <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid in 1992, the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, not as good. Uh, no, well, the first movie really wasn't very good. The first movie is good. We're going to cover it, and you're going to see. All right. Hey, look, I love Rick Moranis. I love Mick, Rick, Mick, Mick Moranis. Mick Moranis. <laughs> the kids were cute. There was ants. It was fun. I love yeah. Shrinky Dinks. 
I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. You like the shrinking down was interesting. I agree. It was I, a hit, man. I know. They made like eight sequels. None I, of them were yeah. good. Uh, working in 70 millimeter 3D, he directed Honey, I Shrunk the Audience in 1995 for the Disney theme parks in Anaheim, Orlando, Tokyo, and Paris. Ooh. Reteaming with most of the principal actors for Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. It drew record crowds for Disney theme parks. It was a huge thing. Yeah, because everybody loved the, the Honey, I Shrunk Trunk. the Kid They wanted the kid to get movie. small. Yeah. Well, yeah, they wanted to get small. Uh, more recently, Kleiser has spent several years working with George Lucas to create the Nina Folk course for filmmakers and actors. An instructional video for aspiring actors, writers, and filmmakers. Kleiser was heavily influenced by Nina Folk's teaching during his time at USC and maintained a relationship with her as his mentor throughout his career. He, okay. he wrote and directed the 360-degree virtual reality series Defrost, the virtual series featuring Carl Weathers, Bruce Davison, and Harry Hamlin, which was shown at the Sundance Film Festival and the Cannes Film Festival in 2016. It's weird that he went back to 1982 to cast the movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a weird time around here when people were, like, trying to figure out the, like, VR, like, 360 thing. Yeah. Like, I went to a few things in Hollywood where there were, like, it was, like, art pieces and stuff. Or, like, trying to do, like, a 15-minute film where you can literally walk around while yeah. the actors are doing stuff. It didn't really take off. <laughs> it's Well, we did a project. Oh, we did. That's a right. VR, which I haven't seen yet, but we did a VR project. Kleiser serves on the SciTech Council of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. At the Directors Guild of America, Kleiser chairs the annual Digital Day presentation and serves on the national board. All right, cool. For Greece, Kleiser took numerous liberties with the original source material, most notably moving the setting from an urban Chicago setting, as the original musical had been, to a more suburban locale, reflecting his own teenage years at Radnor High School in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Odd that everyone in that California school, the boys, of course, had New York accents. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, he had little control over the musical aspects of the film. His choice of theme song, a composition by Charles Fox and Paul Williams, was overruled when Robert Stigwood and Alan Carr commissioned a song from Stigwood's client Barry Gibb at the last minute. Well, he, Paul Williams was huge at the yes. time. Like, he yeah. did all the music for the Muppet movies, yeah. in, and that little guy was a huge star. Like, yes. It's so, I love Paul Williams, but there's just these stars that are anomalies. You can't understand how they became stars. Look, Agreed. He, it's one of those things where talent overshadows yeah. everything else, yeah. and that's it, beautiful. I love it when you have <laughs> like somebody who isn't typically Hollywood yeah. and who yeah. can succeed, and that guy succeeded. That was much easier to do in the 70s <laughs> yeah. than it is now, it's or true. even the 80s, the 90s, and, and all that. I think I, people are becoming less... They're becoming more body positive and less obsessed yeah. with. Yeah, I think we're yeah. ending the era of six packs yes. and uh, undernourished Being, actors. Yeah, thin, super thin models. Yeah. That it's like, yeah. I think we're we're getting to a point where you can just be who you are. I, I'm I'm hoping we get there. What's funny is I think we're at a point now where maybe men are feeling more body dysmorphia than women because women have always been. Yeah bombarded with this stuff and 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 i think maybe they're getting used to it or or at least they've had it for so they're long like actively pushing back exactly it. yeah but you know guys never had you know you look at the old 60s 70s 80s movies yeah. guys were dumpy there were no six packs no. you look at charlton heston or, or you were the Bee Gees and you were a stick thin yes. and it was creepy. or you were androgynous <laughs> uh but ever since you know these six pack veiny 0.2 percent body fat situations i mean i think i think there's a backlash to that. I'd like to yeah. see some regular 50-year-olds, you yeah. know, that look like 50-year-olds on TV. Agreed. Or Agreed. movies. Yeah. Anyway, let's let's 
we're, Let's I, celebrate I, our different bodies. I feel like people. we're coming back to that. I feel like we're we're getting out of that that like everyone needs to be supermodel pretty and and well, it's, I think know. one of the greatest examples of that is uh, Kumail Nanjiani. Yeah. In that uh, Eternals. Eternals role where he got super ripped and yet never takes his shirt off. It, 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 no but there was no it. point And to his it. character didn't even need it. No, no. There was no point to it. In fact, it would have made more sense if his character was dumpy because it fit better with the character of him not caring. Yeah. Like, uh, anyway. And it's just messed with his comedy. Anyway. Where did I go? Oh, Kleiser hated the opening song feeling that the lyrics were too dark and cynical for the light, fun movie he was making and not understanding why a 1970s disco funk song would be in a movie about the 1950s. He's not wrong. I, again, I justified it at the beginning. I think it works. Well, maybe you need to call him up and tell him, and then he'll I be think happier. It, I think it also explains why, at the end, the, the car literally takes off like a plane. It's just someone remembering their time in high school 20 years ago. Yeah. I've never remembered me flying away in a car. I do, every time. Every time graduation. I'm at the carnival, and I'm with my girl, and we just fly away. Okay. Well, you had a very <laughs> unique upbringing. Uh, because Kleiser felt he had no clout, uh, being an inexperienced feature film director, he just let it go. Uh, of course, the theme song to Grease was a huge hit. Yeah, it's a good song. It's a great song. I love that song so much. Don't know if it actually works for the movie, but it's a really good song. I think it does. I think it captures the spirit way better than Randall Kleiser, who made the movie, thinks it does. All right. You're very passionate. I am. I love Grease so much. Know, it's, it's so weird. sad. It's so weird. You finally come alive at the end of the month. I know. I know. Uh, Henry Winkler was offered the lead role of Danny, but turned it down for fear of being typecast as a greaser, having been playing the similar bad boy greaser Arthur, Arthur Fonzarelli of Happy Days since 1974. Yeah, again, too old. Yeah, and I just love that they call Fonzarelli a bad boy greaser. I know that's his character, yeah. but he was just so ineffectual. <laughs> in the beginning, in the first few seasons of he was a bad boy. Okay. He wasn't okay. like the friend. You yeah. know, once he just started the, wearing the windbreaker and the black t-shirt, yeah, yeah. that's when and it was like a mentor. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was they, a teacher. Yes, they, he yes. They turned him into something else. Once he I, started living over the garage, but before that <laughs> when he was just a, a punk. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, he was a bad boy. Yeah. Uh, it's just his his character became so popular that they involved they evolved him into a yeah. And a goon. But also, yes, agreed. He still was too old. Yeah. He was too old to play the part. Well, quite frankly, well, John Travolta, well, quite frankly, all of them were too old. John Travolta was only 23. But he still looked 23. You know what I mean? I, it's like, I, even though I think Michael Tucci was probably 23, too, he looked like he was 45, man. He looked like he was. Was that, was that a duty? Yes. Sonny. Yeah. Sonny. Oh, Sonny. Sonny. Not sorry. Sonny was the sandwich eating guy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Although I had, I mean, I knew guys, he had a five o'clock shadow. I knew guys in high school in 10th grade that had to shave every day. Yeah. Did he, did they have big old crow's feet around their eyes? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were just in the sun the too much. Lines? They were in LA. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. My, my cousin started losing his hair at 17. It did. He was almost fully bald by the time he graduated high school. Look, man, back then people didn't give an F. Everybody no. in high school and College movies were like 80 years old. You know? it, it, it's didn't like matter. it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Yeah. Uh, Winkler would later regret the decision of not taking the movie, but it was the right one as Winkler admits himself that he can't sing. Yeah. I mean, they would have had to get somebody to dub it. Yeah. And then what's the point? And then, you know, and I love Henry Winkler. I mean, he is yeah. such a, an American treasure. Oh, he's amazing. But, he's absolutely amazing. Yeah. And, 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 and kudos to him for realizing that he wasn't right for the Yeah. Yeah. 
Kleiser and Travolta developed a close platonic bond over the course of production on The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, helping Travolta maintain focus as he grieved the death of Diana Highland, his girlfriend at the time, and his on-screen mother in Bubble. Yeah. No, he... Yeah, she was a lot older than him. She was. Uh, she was, uh, Highland was 18 years older than Travolta. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1977 and underwent a mastectomy. However, the cancer spread and her health deteriorated. Highland and Travolta remained together until her death at age 41 on March 27, 1977 in Los Angeles. She would receive a posthumous Emmy for her role in The Boy on the, in the Plastic Bubble. Hmm. 41. That is crap. Yeah, that's really young. Crap. Uh, Travolta's first major role was Billy Nolan in the 1976 adaptation of Stephen King's Carrie. Nice. I didn't know about Diana Highland until I started this, the, you know, researching the yeah. movie. Um, the fact that it was literally the same thing happened like 40 years later with Kelly Preston. Yeah. His kid dying. Like, yeah. it's just, it just, he's had such an amazing, tragic life. Yeah. Like, it's just sad. Well, he's also had like three different careers. Yeah. You know, his careers ended and come back. I mean, the guy is, is... Love him or hate him, John Travolta is a remarkable yeah. person in terms of resilience and bouncing back and yeah. taking advantage of opportunities. You know, I mean, his career was dead yeah. before uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, yeah. Dead because of those talking. I mean, uh, he had that one talking movie that brought his career back for a minute, and then, then he did 18 sequels yeah, that destroyed it. Yeah. It was just it was, poor guy. It was just, they were flash in the pan. Like, it wasn't something that, and, and it's the realization that, you know, he wanted to be an act, like a real actor. Yeah. You know, not just, well, I'm going to talk and be a baby and talk. You know, it's... it. Well, and he, you know, he was... It, it's got to be tough being on the top of the heap and then the bottom. Yeah. And then it's humbling. And then when you get to the top again, like, because, I mean, he was the biggest movie star again in the world oh, in the yeah. 90s. Oh, yeah. With Broken Arrow and... Yeah. And all the the John Woo movies that he did, yeah. Face Off and... Yeah, yeah, he's he's yeah, he's had a very roller coaster up and down career. So Travolta's first major role was Billy Nolan in the 1976 adaptation of Stephen King's Carrie. Around yeah. that time, he landed the star-making role as Vinnie Barbarino. I'm Vinnie Barbarino. And welcome back, Carter. Mr. Carter. <laughs> welcome back, Carter. Mr. Carter. <laughs> He was so good in it. He was. I'm Vinny Barbarino. And he was great ba, in ba, Carrie, ba, too. Ba, like Barbarino. 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 That was his song. Okay. <laughs> Vinny Barbarino. His small role in Carrie showed how good of an actor he could be. Well, it's also so different than a lot of the other stuff that he's played. It's like his first yeah. bad guy role. Well, and it's like, but he actually had depth. Like, he mm -hmm. showed, like, compassion and stuff, even though he still went, went with it, you know? Yeah. But it's it's like, it, it was a very much more layered character than it was in the novel. Sure. I it, it, And he did a good job with it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, there's, look, Travolta's good. He's, I don't think he's been bad. He's been in a lot of bad movies. Yeah. But I don't. I mean, there's a few times where it seems like he's kind of sleepwalking through stuff, yeah. but yeah. or he's just pushing the over the top. Like the '90s were <laughs> ridiculous for actors. I mean, yeah. putting he and Nick Cage trying to outdo it. Face Off is just like the most ridiculous. It's a guilty pleasure. Yes, but it is truly the most ridiculous over the top. If you want to teach a class about overacting, yeah, there's your number one movie right there. <laughs> Two giant perpetrators of. Actual schmaltzy overact. Scenery chewing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Travolta had a hit single titled Let Her In, peaking at number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in July 1976. Let Her In. 
Uh, not number one. I thought it was number one, but it only went to number ten. Yeah, that's but fine. He had, but he had hit. Like, that's weird to me. Uh, Travolta was then cast as Tony Monero for Saturday Night Fever in 1977. I just want to dance, Dad. Just let me dance, Pop. Saturday Night Fever earned him an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor, making him, at age 24, one of the youngest performers ever nominated for the Best Actor Oscar. I'm excited to do this movie since you haven't seen it, since you yeah. thought it was a musical. Yeah. Wrongly. Well, it was all, I thought it was a disco musical, so it was like, uh. No, it's about a kid, Danny Terrio. I just want to dance. He just wants to dance, and he's a good dancer. That just makes me think of, uh, is it Monty Python? <laughs> he's, like, he's like, he builds the castle. I just want to dance, Dad. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's all I think about. Uh, he started rehearsals for Greece just four days after completing filming for Saturday Night Fever. Uh, having two mega-hit movies in a row made it difficult to return to honor his contract for Welcome Back, Cotter, but he fulfilled his contract, albeit with a reduced presence, and eventually left the show in 1979 to pursue a full-time movie career. Now, if I'm correct, and I believe that I am, I think our old buddy Ted McGinley came in. I think you're right. And uh, I know, was... I know he definitely, yes, I think you're right. McGinley, that was McGinley's first show-killing Mc... experience. Ted, Ted the show-killer McGinley? Yeah, that was his first. And it, look. Ted McKinley, I love Ted McKinley. He was great in Revenge of the Nerds, and I, he is a very handsome, he is. funny. He, there, there's nothing wrong with Ted how, McKinley. How he wasn't like bigger yeah. and more popular is beyond me. And it's just very weird coincidence, and they are coincidences. Yeah. that they would bring even Love Boat. I think brought him in yeah. at the end. Yeah, but they would married with children. Uh, although he was on married with children for like five years, and he was I mean, excellent. It, it, it lasted a while. Yes. It was that was the end of his show killing. Yeah. Streak. Yeah. He he lasted <laughs> on that one. But but it wasn't his fault because they brought him in when the shows were long in the tooth and they were dying anyway. Yeah. And so, you know, he gets unfairly blamed for being a show killer. But that poor son of a bitch, man. Yeah. There's like six shows that they brought him in at the end. Happy days. Oh my God. You know, it's just it's just sucks for him. It does. Because he could have been does. such a bigger star. Yeah. He's such a good looking guy. He's a yeah, yeah. There was strong competition during filming between John Travolta and Olivia Newton John. Really? Uh, yeah, because they were both like singers and, and they kind of had like behind the scenes, not fights, but like, I think with creative rivalries, team, with creative team, they were like, Oh, if she's getting a song, I get a song, you know? Okay. But uh, I, I mean, it, it looks, I could see it on his face cause he doesn't look as like he's having as much fun as she is. Yeah. He's very serious when he sings and dances in a lot yeah, of the movie. Yeah. But she, this, it, the reason why I think this movie was so big is because because of her performance and yeah. how much she just absolutely yeah. seemed like she loved doing this role. And oh, yeah. It's yeah. the best thing she's ever done. I agree. I agree. Grease Lightning was supposed to be sung by Jeff Conaway's character, Kanicki, as it is in the stage version, but Travolta used his clout to have his character sing it. I won't sing it. Who Which cares about Kanicki? Totally makes sense because the whole lead up to that song is Kanicki getting a car and then they go to work on it and it's like, oh, guess what? Now it's my car. Yeah, you can see Kanicki's a little peeved. That he's dancing he, in the background. Uh, it, Kleiser felt it was only right to ask Conway if he was okay, and at first he refused, but eventually gave in. Re- I, Conway realized that Travolta was a much bigger star, and what could he do? Yeah, it's just it's just that annoys me though. It's like that. Well, that's youth though. That is youth yes, and insecurity. Yes. Uh, Travolta was adamant because two songs had been added in for Olivia Newton-John that weren't in the Broadway musical, and he didn't want to play second banana to her. Hey, she gets two extra songs. I don't want to play no second banana, so you better give me another song. I'm taking Kanicki's song. I'm taking his song. <laughs> Before Newton-John was hired, Alan Carr was considering numerous names, such as Carrie Fisher and Margaret Deborah Raffin, Susan Day, and Marie Osmond for the lead role. 
Oh, my God. Marie Osmond actually would have been perfect. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, she almost took the role before she realized the extent to which the character transformed into a rebel and turned it down to star in Going Coconuts instead. Well, she didn't make the... The wrong choice there. Uh, Fisher, who had recently finished Star Wars, was ultimately rejected because neither Stigwood nor Carr knew if she could sing, rather than just pick up the phone and ask, apparently. Uh, and she can, too, by the way. Uh, yeah. I mean, her mother was well, extremely the thing is, I know, I know. successful singer. Uh, Kleiser, still friends with George Lucas, actually went and sat in on editing to see Fisher act, but was still unconvinced if she was right for Sandy, so he past yeah because it's star wars can you imagine watching like dailies of star wars without any music or yeah. special effects <laughs> or sound design and that that stiff dialogue <laughs> dialogue is it's, it's like poor show them shampoo yeah i know Give i know a little more I know. life i know uh car eventually chose newton john after a chance encounter at a soiree hosted by helen reddy mm. uh, car was completely smitten with newton john and begged her to sign on for the part Ooh, please sign on for the part please uh it, well, we'll talk about more of Conway, but apparently it was a very common thing for people to get very tongue-tied around Olivia Newton-John. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Newton-John had done little acting before this film, with only two film credits, 1965's Funny Things Happen Down Under, and the little scene 1970 film Tomorrow, which predated her singing breakthrough to her uh, up, up to that time. Yeah, well, watch the... Watch. Listen yeah. to the Xanadu Listen episode to Xanadu. if we, you want to know about yeah. more about Tomorrow. Tomorrow. And it's T-O-O-Morrow, by the way. Tomorrow. Uh, she requested a screen test prior to accepting the role. Kleiser agreed, and they tested the drive-in movie scene between her and Danny. Smart move of her, too, by yeah. the way, because she wanted to see if she could do it. Yes. Yeah. Newton-John agreed to a reduced asking price in exchange for star billing and the ability to rewrite the script, which included changing her character's origin to an Australian immigrant to avoid having to emulate an American accent. Smart. And making her less passive. Uh, in a case of life imitating art, Newton-John's own musical career would undergo a transformation similar to that of the Sandy Olsen character. Her next album after Grease, the provocatively titled Totally Hot, featured a much more sexual and pop-oriented approach, with Newton-John appearing on the album cover in similar all-leather attire and teased hair. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hopelessly Devoted to You was written and recorded after the movie had wrapped, uh, which is super obvious in the movie since she's alone in most of its close-ups. <laughs> Yeah, it's your favorite. <laughs> uh, Newton-John's contract for Grease stipulated that she should have a solo song. However, nobody had any ideas for a song for her character, Sandy, until Olivia's producer, John Farrar, came up with Hopelessly Devoted to You halfway through the shoot. Yeah. Uh, director Randall Kleiser wasn't wholly convinced by the song at first and had to come up with an entirely new scene to fit it in. Kleiser actually hated the song, thinking it was hokey. Mm. Uh, it was eventually filmed and recorded after the movie had wrapped and it earned the film's only Oscar nomination. Nice. <laughs> For You're the One That I Want, Newton-John had to be sewn into her pants after the zipper broke. Good Lord. She said, They sewed me into those pants every morning for a week. Believe me, I had to be very careful how I, what I ate and drank. It was excruciating. Yeah, it was 106 degrees Fahrenheit on the set for the carnival finale. <laughs> she had a swamp ass. Ugh, everybody had swamp Soppy ass. Soppy butts. Soppy butts. Uh, the day after production wrapped, Kleiser realized he needed more footage, but the carnival they were shooting had left town overnight. Let's get out of here. Uh, production then built the entire carnival from scratch for the extra shooting. Oh, boy. God, I must add just a little bit to the budget. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, Sandy was not supposed to participate in the dance contest at all. The one that takes place during the live filming of National Bandstand, oh, yeah, the American man. Bandstand. Cha cha. Yeah, she was supposed to be sidetracked and subdued by Sonny before the contest even started, allowing Cha Cha to jump in and take her place and win the contest. But Newton John was anxious to do some dancing in the movie, even though she was not a professionally trained dancer like Travolta. 
So she convinced director Randall Kleiser to let her dance with Danny in the contest for a few minutes, and then for Sonny to jump in and subdue her a few minutes later. Yeah. Hand jive. Which really, honestly, watching it again, I don't really understand why Sonny pulls her off. Didn't make any sense. She's doing a fine job. Yeah. Like, he's just like, hey. Like, it's like he was like... I don't know. It didn't she make does any look sense. a little goony sometimes. What? But it, but it's obviously, like, it seemed like he wanted to, like, oh, I'm going to take you back and try to make out with you or something. And it's like, well, it's it's Danny's girl. Like, no, what are you doing? took her so Cha-Cha could get in there and they could dance. But why? Because cause Cha-Cha and he used to dance together. They were good mm. dancing partners and we could win. And they didn't well, think they could win with Sandy. Sonny's a moron. Sonny's <laughs> a two-sandwich-eating weirdo, man. <laughs> He's a 45-year-old high school senior. <laughs> Uh, most of the principal cast were well past their high school years. When filming began in June 1977, Stockard Channing was 33. In 1958, the year the film is set, Channing was in fact only three years younger than the age she is playing in the movie. That's crazy. But she looked... She looked young. Yeah. There was definitely... Like, they did a good job with makeup on her. Well, she also was young. a youthful looking yeah. person. She had kind of that baby chub on her face. And, yeah. You know, she's, she wasn't wrinkled up as much. But, man, a lot of those folks really had a lot of crow's feet. Even uh, Olivia Newton-John had some crow's feet going. Michael Tucci was 31. J- Jamie Donnelly was 30. Annette Charles was 29. Olivia Newton-John was 28. Barry Pearl was 27. Jeff Conaway was 26. Dee Dee Kahn was 25. John Travolta was 23. Dinah Manoff was 21. Kelly Ward and Eddie Deason were 20. Eddie Deason! And I La- was 20! Lorenzo Lamas was 19. Lorenzo Lamas, man, he was he was a he did a really good job playing a dumb meathead. <laughs> I don't think he even had one line. No, he did not. He did not. But he was really good. Uh, yeah, too bad his career didn't take off. But uh, look, uh, Jeff Conway and Michael Tucci look like they should have been teachers on the yeah. in the thing. All Barry of the, Pearl, all of them look Kelly good. Ward as Roger, he looked pretty young. He looked yeah. a lot younger than the others. It was if you really want to see how old they look during the dance sequences in the in the gym when when Danny and and uh, uh, Sandy are sitting there waiting to start get up and dancing. Yeah. they have actual extras that look like they're from high school. Right, sitting around them, and it's so obvious how much older it, they are. It is, it is. But but again, that wasn't something that was. It did. It, it, it didn't was matter rare back this. then. Yeah. Everybody looked like they were forty years yeah. old when they were high school's kids. Yeah. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't like a, <laughs> they didn't give a crap. No, they're just like, yeah, hey, put him in. Hey, let's make George Burns a senior. <laughs> Jeff Conaway had appeared in the Broadway musical as well, but played Danny Zuko. Conaway made his film debut in the nineteen seventy one romantic drama Jennifer on My Mind, which also featured future stars Robert De Niro and Barry Bostwick, whom Conaway understudied as Danny Zuko in the Broadway musical of Grease before Bostwick left. Danny Zuko. Conaway would have a part in The Eagle Has Landed in 1976, starring Michael Caine, Robert Duvall, and Donald Sutherland. Conaway would also star in the 1977 musical kids' film Pete's Dragon, starring Sean Marshall, Helen Reddy, Jim Dale, Mickey Rooney, Red Buttons, and Shelley Winters. I didn't know he was in Pete's Dragon. <clears throat> yeah, he was young. I mean, well, not young. I mean, he was literally a year before he did Grease. <laughs> so he wasn't young, but yeah. During production for Grease, Conaway was infatuated with Olivia Newton-John. He was tongue-tied whenever she was around. You can actually see it in the movie. Like, there's times where he's just like, especially at the end, when they're like together, like, he stares at her for a really long time. Yeah, he's a creep. Uh, he later married Olivia's sister, Rona. If I can't have her, I'll take a sister. Conaway, who was one and a half, had to walk slightly stooped so John Travolta, who was 6'2", would appear taller. Okay. Conaway was a bit of a horn dog during production. Both he and Susan Buckner admit to onset fling uh, during the show. 
Stalker Channing also admitted that the hickeys she shows off in the movie were real because Conaway insisted on putting them there himself. Conaway would be cast in the sitcom Taxi shortly after wrapping Grease. While shooting the Grease Lightning musical number, Jeff Conaway was accidentally dropped, hurting his back. Ah. Conaway started taking painkillers, eventually abusing prescription drugs, and spiraling into drug addiction. Ah, So sad what happened. This is going to get really sad for a bit. I apologize. After experiencing a crisis in the mid-80s, Conaway came to grips with having a substance abuse problem. He underwent treatment in the late 1980s and often spoke candidly about his addictions. Unfortunately, by the mid-2000s, he had relapsed. Conaway appeared in VH1's Celebrity Fit Club, but was forced to leave and entered rehabilitation. In early 2008, Conaway appeared with other celebrities in the VH1 reality series Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. That is such... An irresponsible show. I Dr. Drew agree. Pinsky is a quack. I agree. He is. He. I used to listen to him and I, like yeah, him when yeah. he was on the Kevin and Bean show. But the more I know about him, yeah. he is a piece of ass. Yeah. And this show, this well, show, it was bad. Is a disgrace. It and was, it, it was just it was took ex- advantage of people. Exploitative. So exploitative. These poor sons of bitches. These poor people were going through the worst times of their lives, and they were desperate, and they needed money. Yeah. And yeah. so they appeared on this show, which was just garbage. I, I just, it makes me so angry, yeah. you know, that they took advantage of these poor people. The show revealed that Conaway was addicted to cocaine, alcohol, and painkillers, and that he was in a codependent relationship with his girlfriend, who was also a user of prescription opiates. Conaway's appearance on the show's first and second seasons drew much attention because of his severely crippled state. His constant threats to leave the facility and his frequent inability to speak clearly. It was so heartbreaking because they played... And again, because this is a TV show, they portrayed him as a villain. Yeah. And they completely besmirched his character because when you're going through this crap, you are not at your best. Yeah. You know? And to to exploit that and to to air this, air people in their... in the throes of their worst addictions and, and struggling with it, you can't... It's just so sad. I mean, you took a guy who had a, a, a 40-year career, a really impressive career. Yeah. I, whenever I think of Taxi, I always think of the scene with he and Jim. Yeah. Uh, Reverend Jim, when Jim was getting his taxi license. Yeah. And, the, and, he's, and, and uh, Jeff Conway is helping him cheat. And, and, uh, <laughs> and Christopher Lloyd's like, what does the yellow light mean? Slow down. What does the yellow (laughs) light mean? Slow down. What? is one of the most hilarious scenes ever. He was so good on that show. And it's just to to have his career end with this abomination of a show, it, it, it breaks my heart. Upon arrival at the Pasadena Recovery Center, which was filmed as part of Silid Rehab's first episode, Conaway, using a wheelchair, arrived drunk, mumbling to Trupinski that he had binged on cocaine and Jack Daniels whiskey the previous night. Uh, it wasn't until, I didn't include this in, but it wasn't until he, I think it was in the second season, when he admitted that he almost broke a mirror and killed himself the night before. Wow. Like, he, he literally was like, I want to punch that mirror and then slice my wrist open. And, and, then, and then he was actually put in rehab. Like, Yeah. On May 11, 2011, Conaway was found unconscious from what was initially described as an overdose of substances believed to be pain medication and was taken to a medical center where he was listed in critical condition. After initial reports, Drew Pinsky, who had treated Conaway for substance abuse, said the actor was suffering not from a drug overdose, but rather from pneumonia with sepsis for which he was placed into an induced coma. 
Though his drug use did not cause his pneumonia, it hampered Conaway's ability to recognize how severely ill he was and to seek treatment for pneumonia until it was too late. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure Dr. Drew Pinsky was right there to help him throughout all of this when the cameras were off. Uh, on May 26, 2011, Conaway's family took him off life support after doctors determined they could do nothing to revive him. Conaway died the following morning at the age of 60. God damn, such a young age and just a tragedy. The guy was... He looks a lot like our friend, Greg. <laughs> he does. <laughs> if you're listening, Greg, you got a little bit of Kanicki in you. Um, you're in much Greece. more handsome. In Greece. In Greece, in Greece yes. Yeah, if yeah. you watch Greece again, Greg, yeah. you'll see. You'll see. <laughs> this really honestly hits home because I had a friend that this literally just happened to yeah. a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Like he, over, he overdosed, had a heart attack, was on life support for a week, and they finally took him off. He Young kid, too. Yeah. It just, it is just awful. Awful. Yeah. Just don't. Just stick to pot, people. If you're going to use drugs. Exactly. It's not going to kill you. Oh, my God. And if you do anything more than pot, make sure there's other people around. Yes. And also know where your drugs come from. Yes. It's not even worth it anymore. And that, and, and, in that realm, <laughs> just don't do the other drugs anymore. It it's not worth it anymore. Do pot. Just smoke pot. It's Pot's legal everywhere drugs. now. It's Pot's legal. pot. Yeah. And don't if you don't want to. No pressure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Barry Pearl was cast as duty. Uh, Pearl got a start on the sitcom CPO Sharky, created by Aaron Rubin, starring Don Rickles. Oh, that was a good show. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think I've never seen it, Uh, but reading about it, I would like to. It's just another one of those weird, like, army, armed forces comedies. Well, it was, I I think it was really, uh, it was built around Don Rickles and his insult comic. Because it was the third show that allowed him to showcase his insult comic talent. Hey, get over here, you hockey puck. (laughs) Uh, Aaron Rubin produced the Andy Griffith Show and later created its spinoff Gomer Pyle USMC in 1964. Golly! I sure I, love having my own show, Adam. Apparently he just made things about the military. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, Pearl played Recruit Mignone for 14 episodes of the show. Apparently, uh, CPO Sharky, the whole cast was just various stereotype ethnicities. <laughs> Sure. He played the Italian, so there you go. Hey, you dirty wop. What are you doing? You <laughs> hockey puck. Pearl would go on to have a long TV career, appearing in many shows. Barney Miller, Eight is Enough, Benson, Hill Street Blues, Alice, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Falcon Grass, Growing Pains, Murder, She Wrote, Major Dad, Beverly Hills 90210, and E.R. He played Professor Tinker Putt in the primetime special Barney's Imagination Island and the U.S. tour of Barney's Big Surprise, a stage production based on the popular TV show as well as a video game of the same name. I love you. <laughs> you love me. Hey, man, I guess you take the work where you can. <laughs> hey, there's no shame in working. Uh, Pearl's last credit is appearing in the TV special of Grease Live. That was in 2016. I don't know. Uh, during the summers, he teaches film arts all across the U.S. to the special needs community with Joey Travolta's Inclusion Film Company. Nice. What a great guy. Yeah. Good he still looks good, too, Barry Pearl. He has a great career. Yeah. And, uh, and he's doing good. Doing well, good. Well, yes. And he, he at, at his advanced age, he hasn't turned into an angry white dude running from California. <laughs> he's actually helping special needs people. There what a go. nice twist. Michael Tucci was cast as Sonny Latieri. The original Tucci. The original Tucci. Yeah, stolen by Stanley Tucci, his uh, cousin. Yeah. No relation <laughs> to Stanley Tucci. None that I could I find. I don't know, man. Tucci, Tucci. Uh, Tucci is like Smith in Italy. There's a lot of them. All right. Yeah. Tucci's role in Greece was his first big part, and he was able to capitalize. He had a recurring role on Trapper John M.D. and appeared in 36 episodes of The Paper Chase. Oh, he did. He was one of the students. He would make many guest appearances on TV. Barney Miller four times playing four different characters. The Love Boat. 
Angie, Alice, Night Court, Cagney, and Lacey, Different Strokes, and MacGyver. In MacGyver, he played a paperclip. <laughs> Great. Uh, he would appear as Pete Schumacher in 71 episodes of It's Gary Shandling Show from 1986 to 1990. He was great on that show. Yes. And that was show was so I good. I love that show so much. That's not, not to be confused with the Larry Sanders show, which was the behind-the-scenes talk show. This was Gary Shandling's first show, which was right. a takeoff and a send-up of sitcoms. And yeah. uh, Michael Pooch was really good on it. From there, he appeared in all 22 episodes of Flying Blind, the sitcom starring Corey Parker in 1982. Okay. He also appeared in 85 <laughs> episodes of Diagnosis Murder from 1993 to 1997. Uh, his last appearance was in the pilot for The Comedians, a sitcom starring Billy Crystal and Josh Gad as fictional versions of themselves. Yeah. No, th- uh, that wasn't good. I uh, mean, no, it was not. <laughs> uh, I think I got like two minutes in before I was like, I can't. Look, I loved Billy Crystal. I yeah. loved him. Yeah. Loved him. I can't. I can't anymore with him. Yeah. I can't. I, no, I, I agree. Uh, Kelly Ward was cast as Putsy. Ward had appeared in The Boy in the Plastic Bubble with John Travolta. Yeah, she was in it with me. The character of Putsy was created specifically for the movie version of Grease. Ward made appearances in TV shows such as... The Waltons, MASH, Brett Maverick, Quincy, M.E., and Magnum P.I. As well as some feature films. He essentially stopped appearing on screen in 1983 and dedicated himself to voice work. Oh, I'd love to do that. He wrote and did voice work for Challenge of the Go-Bots in 1984. Go-Go-Bots! An American animated show produced by Hanna-Barbera. He would continue to write animated shows such as... Wildfire, Sky Commanders, Popeye and Son, Fantastic Max, The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley, one of the greatest cartoons ever made, The Further Adventures of Super Ted, The Pirates of Dark Water, Voltron. The Third Dimension, The New Woody Woodpecker Show, Horrible Histories, But Ugly Martians, Liberty's Kids, Trolls with a Z, Firehouse Tales, Jakers, The Adventures of Piggly Winks, Wow Wow Wubsy, Crime Time, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Jake and the Neverland Pirates, and Mickey Mouse Mixed Up Adventures. He would also write two features, Once Upon a Forest in 1993 and All Dogs Go to Heaven 2 in 1996. Yeah, I remember both of those. Uh, Ward is actively working as a voice director for Disney Television Animation. Nice. He has voice directed Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, Jake and the Neverland Pirates, Star vs. the Forces of Evil, and many more. He also teaches musical theater at the University of Southern California. Good for him. He's had a very good career. Yeah, he has. Stalker Channing was cast as Betty Rizzo, uh, which I always forget that her first name is Betty. <laughs> no, because she's like, call me my, my first name. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, like, and he's uh, like, I don't know what it is. Uh, it's Betty, a Jake. Yeah. Uh, Channing started, like many actors, doing shows on Broadway. Channing gained attention for her performance in The Fortune in 1975, starring Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty. Uh, Channing was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Acting Debut in a Motion Picture Female. Nice. In 1978, along with Grease, Channing made an appearance in the ensemble parody The Cheap Detective from Neil Simon, starring Peter Falk in the title role. It's a great movie. Fantastic yes. movie. Yes. And it's, it's the, the part that he plays is very close to the part that he plays in Murder by Death. Yes, yes. It's kind of a in-spirit sequel to Murder by Death. Yeah, yeah. 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 Channing starred in two short-lived sitcoms on CBS in 1979 and 1980, Stalker Channing in Just Friends and The Stalker Channing Show, playing a character named Susan Goodenow. What? Goodenow? She had a show called The Stalker Channing Show, and she played a character named Susan Goodenow. They couldn't even call her Stalkered. I, what was the point uh-huh. of calling it The Stalker Channing Show? I don't understand. Because back then... Because, I mean, the Paul Lynn show, he didn't play Paul Lynn. I know, but it's like... On the I, Dick Van Dyke show, he played... Dick Petrie, but at least they gave them their first I, yeah, real names. Yeah. But Stockard is a weird name. It is. And but it's, it's like but it's also very you know, it's like nobody else's name Stockard. 
true. Uh, in both shows, she co-starred with actress Sydney Goldsmith, who played her best friend. Uh, when her Hollywood career faltered after these failures, Channing returned to her theater roots. She would win a Tony for her role in A Day in the Death of Joe Egg in 1985. She would be nominated six more times for the Tony Award, unfortunately not winning any. Yeah, this crime. Yeah. Channing reprised her lead role as an Upper East Side matron in the film version of Six Degrees of Separation. Oh, she was so good. Everybody was really good in that, except for... <laughs> well, look, I don't think that Will Smith was right for the part. I yeah. think that he didn't have... Look, if you, if you refuse to kiss a dude and you're playing a gay character, then don't play a gay character. Yeah, yeah. Okay? I get Pass. it. He was young. Pass. Yeah, but still. And in, but Pass. still, it's yeah. like, you know, he he brought that film down. Uh, she was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe Award for her performance in The Six Degrees of Separation. As she should have. The yeah. other actors were amazing. Yeah. And she was impeccable, as she always is. So good. Her nomination made her hot ticket Hollywood again, and Channing appeared in a number of movies and TV shows, as well as continued to act on Broadway. In 1999, Channing won the part of Abby Bartlett, the first lady on The West Wing. Yeah. Channing would be nominated for an Emmy six times during the course of the show. You know, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of The West Wing. I have seen... Like half of an episode. And that was only because I worked for uh, the same production company yeah. that did the West Wing. And it was like, I happened to be like in an editing booth and I was there for like 20 minutes and I was like, oh, okay. They popularized the walk and talk. Man, when, when that, you walk and you talk. When that show got syndicated, yeah. I was working on the show Justice. I was working on that show. When that show got syndicated, they bought everybody that worked on that show a $3,000 bicycle. Nice. $3,000 bicycle. I was, it was insane because the, the syndication deal I got was worth was like $300 million. Still a weird it's gift, crazy. though. Yeah, it was all Especially painted. Especially for all the, the older The West people. Wing and stuff. Yeah. I know, I know. I mean, what are you going to do? Oh, you turn around and sell it. I all guess. I know is, man, verbose. It's like two shows of scripts in one show. It's one of those shows that's been on my list to watch because I've heard great things, but I just have never watched I'm just, I'm not a huge Aaron Sorkin fan. He's just too... In love with his own words, and he just... Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, but the actors are great in the West Oh, my Wing. God. Dulé Hill is one of my favorite actors. Yeah. He was... But, but love him on uh, Psych. You know? <laughs> he was much better on that. John Spencer was on it. Allison Janney. Janelle Maloney. Everybody. Bradford Sheen. Whitford. Martin Sheen. Yeah. It's... it's it, Bradley I, Whitford. I said no. Bradford Whitler. Brad, Bradford Whitley. Yeah. <laughs> Bradford Whitley. Uh, so even though she was nominated six times for the Emmy uh, Channing... She only won once in 2002 for Outstanding Supporting Actress. Yeah. Uh, but that same year, she also won the Outstanding Supporting Actress in a limited or anthology series or movie for her part as Judy Shepard in the Matthew Shepard story. Yeah, that was really good. And she was, God, she's just so... I didn't look it up, but I don't think it's happened very often where someone wins two Emmys for two different projects. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's happened very no. often. No. So. It's the same show. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's so good. I, she's I mean, the so same good. year. Is same year, year, yeah. Channing continues to work, most recently, most recently appearing in 12 episodes of The Good Wife and in the British TV series Maryland. Good, 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 good. Yeah, she's still out there. She's still working. Uh, Didi Khan is cast as Frenchie Facciano. I had such a crush that's on so Didi Khan funny. as a kid. That's so funny. She was always so weird looking to me. But that's, I like the weird like looking. <laughs> I know. It's like, I wasn't, I, yeah, yeah, I like the fair faucets and the it's in the Lonnie Andersons when oh, I was a yeah, kid yeah, yeah, and yeah, you know yeah. but I more was attracted to like the brunettes or the yeah. friends or the quirky ones because I liked in this movie of course you know everybody like loved Olivia Newton-John Sandy when she got was all hot gorgeous yeah, I mean and everybody was well, like she mm. was pretty at the beginning sure like, but I, mean, I don't I mean, know yeah. I was like a, I like Didi Khan I like Stalker Channing and I like Dan 
uh, Diana Manoff. Yeah. Those yeah. were my three. And I also had a huge crush on Diana Manoff because she was on Soap, right? I think so. We'll, yeah. we'll get to her. Con gained notice from the 1977 film You Light Up My Life, co-starring Joe Silver and Michael Zaslow. Oh, my God. That is such a bad movie. Um, <laughs> you know, You Light Up My Life was written about Jesus, and so uh, – which people didn't really understand. And this movie, I, can't, I think it was like her finding God or something. Uh, you light up. Uh, the movie was panned, with most critics agreeing that Khan's sensitive performance was the best thing in the movie. She's awesome, but also she's got a very unique voice that makes it difficult for yeah. people to take her seriously, even though she's a very good actor. Uh, after Grease, Khan appeared in Grease 2. She appeared as Helen on The Practice from 76 to 77, Denise Stevens Downey on Benson from 81 to 84, yeah. and Stacey Jones on Shining Time Station from 1989 to 1995. Don't know what that is. She used footage from the British show Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends. Oh, so it was a kid show. It was the kid show that we know of. Uh, it was originally hosted by Ringo Starr. And then after he left the first season, it was hosted by George Carlin. He literally played the, <laughs> I'm not kidding. So he played weird. the like station attendant or whatever for like six years. But they used footage from a British show and then kind of made I a story around this. it. Like it's Let me tell you the seven words, kids. It's super weird. <laughs> it's super weird. But like I, it, it's, yeah. You got all your stuff. And you take all your stuff, and you got to put your stuff somewhere. So you get to place to put your stuff. Uh, so Diddy Khan appeared as a celebrity guest on game shows like... Match Game, the $20,000, $25,000, $50,000, and $100,000 Pyramids. Woo! Chain Reaction and Go. Woo! Was a show, by the way. I know. I, they, they actually just started showing it on the Game Show Network, like the Pluto TV like like thing. Yeah. It's on like twice a day. She was very it's fun so on Match weird. Game. She was yeah. great. In January 2016, she had a cameo as Vi in the Grease live television special in, on Fox, thus being the only actress to appear in all three screen adaptations of the franchise. Nice. In 2019, Khan was a contestant on the 11th series of the British television series Dancing on Ice. Yikes! At 67, she was the oldest person ever to compete on the show. Well, she was a dancer, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Khan is married to composer David Shire, Talia Shire's ex-husband. Uh, she most recently can be seen on Blue Bloods and Harlan Coben's Shelter. Which just just came out, I think, on Prime. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it just came out recently. Uh, Jamie Donnelly was cast as Jan. I just want to say, yeah. I love Didi Cole, and yeah. I hope that she lives forever. Yeah. Jamie Donnelly was cast as Jan. Prior to Grease, she made appearances on TV shows The Six Million Dollar Man, Police Woman, and Barnaby Jones. Barnaby Jones! In the early 1970s, she was in the United States premiere of the Rocky Horror Show starring as Magenta and the Usherette. Yeah. She appeared on stage at the Roxy Theater in Los Angeles with Tim Curry and Meatloaf in 1974 when the show opened. She is featured on the original Roxy cast recording in her role, singing the opening song Science Fiction Double Feature. Yeah. She went with most of the Roxy cast to reprise her roles on Broadway in 1975, but did not reprise the role in the film adaptation as the British production's original magenta, Patricia Quinn, reprised the role instead. Oh, Yeah. She was then offered a part on the Grease Broadway show. While her film co-stars John Travolta and Jeff Conaway had appeared in the stage version of Grease as different characters, and Frankie Avalon reprised his film character on stage, Donnelly was the only person to reprise, reprise her stage character on film. Nice. She was 31 years old by the time the film was released and had to dye her graying hair to continue to fit the part. Oh, she's gray now. 100% gray. But she was so hilarious. I mean, she's very funny. Yeah. She was kind of the comic relief of the pink ladies. Yeah. Uh, but she, again, another one of those infectiously happy, fun performers. Yeah. You could tell yeah. she was having a 
time of her life. Donnelly worked sporadically over the next four decades. She played a teacher in Can't Hardly Wait in 1988, a pastor in the 2010 film Cyrus from the Duplass Brothers, and most recently had a part in the 2017 sci-fi film Cargo starring Martin Freeman. Huh, I never saw that. And she was also, I didn't watch that either. Um, I keep seeing it, and I was like, no, I'm just going to push it down further than my queue. <laughs> uh, but she was also played the mother in Ray Donovan. Right. Oh, yeah. man. I, I, so, such a different part. Yeah. Such a different part than Jan. I, it. <laughs> I had no idea that it was the same actor, but every but while I was watching Grease again, I'm like, God, I know her from yeah, something. Yeah, uh, my folks just uh, watched Reed Donovan. Oh yeah, yeah, they yeah. liked it. Dinah Manoff was cast as Marty Maraschino, as she says her name is in the movie. I don't know if that's actually true or not. Just like the chair, right? Yeah, she Ugh. says it to the guy trying to pick up the the host, the fifty year old host. Yeah. Ugh, it's so gross. Uh, the same year that Grease was released, her first feature film, she was also cast in Soap, starring in sixteen episodes of the first two seasons. That's such a good show. I know. I still need to sit down and watch that Soap. Uh, in 1980, Manoff made her Broadway debut as Libby Tucker in Neil Simon's Broadway play, I Ought to Be in Pictures. From her work in the play, she won the Tony Award for Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Play. Nice. She reprised that role for the film version in 1982 with Walter Matthau and Anne Margaret. Wow. Also in 1980, Manoff appeared as Karen, the suicidal friend of Timothy Hutton's character and the multiple Oscar-winning Ordinary People. Ordinary People. That was uh, Robert Redford's directorial debut. Oh, it was I his believe. debut. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, and it was also... I believe Mary Tyler Moore was one of her first real, oh, uh, like like the villain pieces, right? Like more dramatic. Yeah, because like I mean, uh, the whole point of the movie, I think he's suicidal, or I think there's his brother dies or something, yeah. and he affects him, and his dad is Donald Sutherland, and it's just his mom is so cruel to him because wow. his she the. Her favorite died, you know? Right, right. So it's just, it was also such a depressing movie. It was one of those movies that was just... <laughs> Yay! Uh, but we will cover it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's a great movie, but it's just... It sounds, yeah, the star power, and it sounds amazing. Yeah, and it, it just propelled uh, Timothy Hutton Timothy into Hutton. the... Yeah. That and, and Taps yeah. made him a star. In 1988, Dinah Manoff played Maggie Peterson in Child's Play, the first character to be killed by the murderous possessed doll Chucky. That was great. Yeah. It's great to see her, too. It was good. Yeah, it was good to see her in that. Manoff then started a seven-year stint as Carol Weston on the NBC sitcom Empty Nest, which was a spinoff of The Golden Girls, a role for which she is best known on television and appeared in every episode of the series. What's really funny is she played Richard Mulligan's daughter on Soap, and then I believe she played Richard Mulligan's daughter again yeah. on, on, Empty on, Nest, on Empty Nest, which is really cool. I, it's funny. Uh, I just... Well, I'll, and we'll talk about this more during our um, stepdad show, but... Uh, Phoebe and I just started watching Golden Girls. Oh, really? I've never actually sat down and watched the whole thing. I've only seen a couple episodes, and I was like, you know what? I think we'll like this. She seems to be enjoying it, but I didn't realize there were three spinoffs from that show. Yeah, there was the- Golden Palace, Mm -hmm. which was kind of a direct sequel-ish without B. Arthur. Right. And then Empty Nest, and then there was a show called Nurses. Yep. That I don't even know, I, I don't know anything about it, but I was shocked. I had no idea that that many shows spun off that. Oh, yeah. I mean, but that was the whole thing back then was- Everything spun off of everything. Well, you know? it, was, I mean, it was huge. The show was huge. Right. It was like I look mean, at Happy Days. You had yeah. Laverne and Shirley. You had yeah. Morgan and Mindy. You yeah. Know? You had it all had sorts of things. It, yeah. it, spinoffs were the big Joni Loves Chachi. Yeah. TV was TV. And right, they needed right. a lot of content because there were only three channels. And so they did a 
Mayberry RFT. Uh, you know, it's just uh, the more if it's a spinoff of a show that you already know, yeah, it's less marketing I have to do. Exactly. And after Mash, or you know, all of these shows. <laughs> after Mash. <laughs> oh, the aftermath of Aftermath. And Trapper John MD, which is technically a Mash spinoff show. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Uh, it's not played by the same actor. But, but the character? But the character No, oh, I is, didn't know that. from Mass Trapper John. That's crazy. We'll have to do a spinoff uh, month. Yeah. That'd be that interesting. Fun. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Manoff has not done much acting since the late aughts. Her last role was in like 2009. Yeah, she's But she's enough. still around. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I would love to see her again. I've yeah. always had a big crush on her. I had a huge crush on her in this movie. Well, Marty was kind of the most feminine of the bunch. She yeah. was like, she was the older, not older, but she was the more mature dating yeah. guys, Marines, dating like 80 Marines. Yeah. Writing yeah. them all letters. Um, <laughs> she liked older men because she went after she, old Vince Fontaine. Technically, at the end of the movie, she ended up with Sonny. The, the way that they, they kind of implied that yeah. they all paired off. Yeah, yeah. And she ended up with the sandwich-eating Goomba. <laughs> well, she had a type. Yeah, it was weird. Uh, so there were a bunch of other actors You would in think Greece. that Jan and Sonny would be together. I agree, but it's not what the movie did. No, I think I was Roger actually was with good for Sonny. Yeah. Right? Was it Roger? Was that his name? Roger, yeah. There was Roger and Doody. Maybe Doody was with Jan. Was Doody the blonde? No, that was Roger. That was Roger. Okay. Duty was the 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 guy with the square jaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Regardless, it seems like the ending didn't really happen since they fly away in a car. I don't know, Adam. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there were a bunch of other actors in Greece. Uh, Randall Kleiser specifically gave backstories to all of the supporting actors and extras to make sure it didn't look like just a bunch of actors pretending to be in high school. Right. I can't imagine... That would take forever, uh, but, you know. Uh, Eddie Deason was uh, Eugene Felsnick. I'm Eddie Deason. I didn't have any lines. Uh, Deason was actually in two features, his first two, before appearing in Greece in 1978. Laser Blast, the Star Wars ripoff film, which I started watching not until I didn't get to the part where he came in, because it's so bad. Yeah, I said Laser Blast, Laser Blast. He was also in I Want to Hold Your Hand, the other Beatles movie to come out, along with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Complete. Club, club band. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, I played John Lennon. It was, uh, came out in 78. It was written by Bob Gales and Robert Zemeckis with Zemeckis directing, which was not a financial success either. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Susan Buckner was cast as Patty Simcox. Yeah. She was the, uh, the, the nerdy one that honed in on Sandy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Were, yeah. She looks great. Yeah. Prior to her acting career, she was crowned Miss Washington in 1971, and oh, yeah. in September went on to become a top 10 finalist in the Miss America 1972 pageant. Very pretty lady. She tied for first in the swimsuit preliminary, but she lost. Didi Khan said that most of the cast became like a family, and Susan Buckner was a bit of an outcast, much like her character. We all made fun of her and ignored her, Khan said. Buckner stopped acting in 1981 and now directs children theater in Miami. Well, good for her for finding and pivoting. But it sounds like she wasn't a very nice person on set. Well, yeah. Lorenzo Lamas was cast as Tom Chisholm. Uh, Stephen Ford was originally cast in the film as Tom Chisholm, but dropped out before filming began and was, re- was replaced by Lorenzo Lamas, citing stage fright. Who's, who's Stephen, Stephen Ford, Ford is Gerald Ford's son. Oh, really? Yeah. He actually had a pretty big career. I Surprisingly enough, he acted after this, but this was the first off- part he was offered, and he was like, I can't do it. Weird. But he had a big career in the 80s. Wow. Yeah. Gerald Ford's kid. It's super weird. It is weird. Uh, Mark Feidrich, a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, was cast, but he ran into conflicts with his full-time career as a baseball player. I gotta play ball. (laughs) 
the role of Tom Chisholm contained no spoken dialogue and required Lamas to bleach his hair to avoid looking like one of the T-Birds. Lamas has appeared in dozens of movies and TV shows, most notably for nine years on primetime soap opera Falcon's Crest. Oh, yeah. And then he did that weird um, syndicated show, like... Yeah. Scorpion or something where he yeah Viper or something Viper where, I think it was Viper I don't know what it was I did Whatever. I think I, was... I worked a couple of days on that oh as, really as like a PA uh, Whew, he was not pleasant uh, Dennis Cleveland Stewart was cast as Leo Craterface Balmudo he was the leader of the Scorpions yeah he was uh, badass hung, hung out with Cha Cha got in the big race and lost he had a good smile it's just unfortunate that he had such bad acne scars uh, bad uh, according to Eddie Deason Dennis Stewart picked him up in the mornings at Deason's house and they went to the shoot together in Stewart's car <laughs> that is so cool I just want I want to do a play where it's Eddie Deason and Dennis Stewart writing to to do grease. Hi, Dennis. You gonna give me a ride today? <laughs> just, just be quiet, okay, Eddie. Just, it's early, so early in the morning. Just, I haven't had my coffee yet, Eddie. Listen to your music, Eddie. Just put your headphones on. Listen to your music. Okay, I'll do that for you. Have you had your coffee yet? I wanna hold your hand. Can I sing along with my tunes? Uh, Stuart was actually dancer number twenty-seven in Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the nice. movie, being highly visible in the Steve Martin Maxwell Silver Hammer scene. If you remember, watch that scene again. He is literally front and center in most of the shots. Maxwell Silver. God, it's so weird. Uh, Unfortunately, Stewart was diagnosed with HIV in 1993 and died from pneumonia as a result of complications from AIDS in 1994. Ah, so sad. So many. He was only like 50. I mean, he was super young. Well, AIDS took so many talented, wonderful people. Um, Yeah, it was just such a tragic. Tragic epidemic, yeah. you know, yeah. that was so ignored. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. Good job, Ronnie. Uh, yeah, good job, you homophobic piece of ass. Uh, Annette Charles was cast as Charlene Cha Cha de Gregorio. Cha Cha. I was called Cha Cha. During the Thunder Road scene, Annette Charles was in excruciating pain from what turned out to be an ectopic pregnancy. Oh my God. That's why Cha Cha frequently leans against cars during the scene. Oh my God. Charles died on August 3rd, 2011 in Los Angeles from lung cancer, age 63. So young! Again, yeah. Cancer, man. Just F cancer. F cancer. Uh, the film brought in a handful of 1950s veteran TV actors for the school staff. Oh, some of the best. Oh, my God. Eve Arden as Principal McGee. Eve Arden's role as Principal McGee is a nod to her earlier role as a teacher in R. Miss Brooks in 1952. She has such a distinctive voice. She does. And she is just... Holy. Her together with Fanny Flagg. Yeah. The two of them were just gold. Oh, my God. The, the, the chimes. Bing, bing, bing. Fanny Flag, by the way, <laughs> is one of the funniest MMFers ever to grace the silver them, screen. Them crying at the end. It's that was so good. They're just so... It was so smart. This is another thing that elevated this movie, was by bringing in stars of the actual time yes. where the movie yes. takes place, TV stars, and... and and great stars like Sid Caesar and Fanny Flagg and Eve Arden, uh, uh, not so much Frankie Avalon, but uh, um, it just made it so much more real to the time. You know what I yeah. mean? Dodie Goodman was cast as Blanche uh, in 1976. She played the mother of the title character in the television series Mary Hart and Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman. Her distinctive high pitched voice announcing the show's title at the beginning of each episode. She also voiced Miss Miller in the television series Alvin and the Chipmunks and the film spinoff The Chipmunk Adventure. Nice. Did you ever watch um, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman? No. It's pretty funny. Uh, she died from natural causes at the age of 93 in 2008. Oh. Uh, Sid Caesar. 93, that's good. 93. She lasted a long time. She, was, she did. Uh, oh, I, sorry. I meant to include with Eve Arden. Uh, Paul Lind was actually considered for the role of Arden, ultimately filled with a scene conceived for Lind that he would have had him in a Carmen Miranda outfit. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, he passed uh, on the role. 
Sid, Sid Caesar was cast as Coach Vince Calhoun, uh, adult film star, most notably from Deep Throat in 1972. Harry Reams was originally signed to play Coach Calhoun. However, executives at Paramount nixed the idea, concerned that his reputation as a porn star would hinder box office returns in the southern United States, and they cast Sid Caesar instead. The opposite? <laughs> yes. Well, good. Look. I, Would I, I picture Sid Caesar as a football coach? No, but he did a great job. But that's what made it funny. Yeah, that's what made he was, the scene with him and Travolta and them trying out yes. different things was so it was timed great. so well. Well, because Sid Caesar's a comic genius. Uh, Alice Ghostly was cast as Mrs. Murdoch. <sighs> she was best known for her roles as Bumbling Witch Esmeralda on Bewitched. So good on Bewitched. Alice Ghostly showed up on just about everything, yeah. and she just had such impeccable comic timing, and she was just so good at playing kind of worried. And, yeah. And it yeah. was so cool to see her as the shop teacher yes. that goes along to she the – so great. Like, my boys are going to let me down. I totally forgot that she was in all those scenes because yeah. she's so short. I yeah. thought she was just another student. But she showed up for the She the was there race for the race. She was like, no, we're doing this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she was she so was good. Great. I love Alice Ghostly. Uh, she, uh, she also played Cousin Alice on Mayberry RFD. And after Grease, as Bernice Clifton on Designing Women, for which she received an Emmy nomination for Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series in 1992. She was excellent. Uh, Joan Blondell was cast as Vi. Uh, Blondell started as a vaudeville performer and worked for five decades, appearing in more than 100 movies and TV programs. Uh, she was the... Uh, um, the, she was the waitress at the The diner. waitress who, yeah. who talks to Frenchie. Again, another actor who had an impeccable career starting in vaudeville. Uh, you know, like in the 30s, yeah. And just like one of those... Actors that, oh, you, as soon as yeah. you see her face, you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen yeah, her in oh, yeah. things. It's Joan Blondell. Uh, she died of leukemia in Santa Monica on Christmas Day 1979 at the age of 73. Oh, man. It was not very much, very long after Greece. No, and, and how sad to die on yeah. Christmas. Yeah. Uh, Ed Burns was cast as Vince Fontaine, the smooth talking. He has one of the be- the best when he's getting the audience yeah. like all riled up in the rhyming. It's so good. All right, cats and kittens, when you get down to the things, we got to do the sky. Yeah, and then you're going to do the gizgi and the guy to go to go. So good. Uh, Burns was most, most well known for the TV show 77 Sunset Strip, which ran from 58 to 64. Yeah, that was a fun show with these two dudes that drove around in their cool little car on the Sunset Strip. Yeah. I think they solved crimes. They were detectives, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, he was also a charting recording artist with Kooky Kooky Lend Me Your Comb with Connie Stevens. We've talked about this. We have talked before. about this before. Uh, Burns died of natural causes on January 8th, 2020, at the age of 87. Well, that's good for him. I mean, 87 is a good run, but still. Sad. Yeah. Frankie Avalon casts Teen Angel. Uh, of all the actors and actresses in the movie, Frankie Avalon was the only one who was in a 1950s musical, Jamboree, in 1957. Nice. He was also uh, in Beach Blanket Bingo and all the, yes. the He was a big teen he, star, so was, it was yeah. smart to have him play no, the part. No, it made sense. It totally made sense. He had a lot of uh, work done on his face, it looked like. Yeah. The, the, you know what the biggest tell was? When... They shot him from behind. If you look behind his ears, you could see where they bunched up, where they pulled oh, all yeah. the skin back yeah. to, yeah. you know. But I get it. You know, you got to look young. Uh, Elvis Presley was considered for the role of the Teen Angel, but turned it down. Oh, uh, you should do it. In the stage play, the song Look At Me, I'm Sandra D" had a reference to Sal Minio, who was murdered in 1976. Good for Lord. the movie, the lyric was changed to reference Elvis Presley. Ironically, the slumber party scene in the movie and the song was filmed on August 16th, 1977. The day that Elvis died. On the toilet. Yeah. Poor Elvis. They were singing about him while he died. Ah, my ears are burning. 
<laughs> oh, my ears are burning. Oh, oh, what's that? Oh. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Marie Osmond's brother and duet partner Donny Osmond was another potential teen angel before Avalon was cast, as was Frankie Valli, who would have been who had been given the choice of either singing the theme or appearing as the teen angel, and he chose to sing the theme. Yeah, smart choice. It's a great song. Uh, Grease was originally released in the United States on June 16th, 1978. It was an immediate box office success. Just to go back really quickly... <laughs> Donny Osmond would have been perfect. Yeah. Because he's such a clean cut little. Th- yeah. Donnie and Marie was such a bizarre thing. They were the biggest stars in the world for a while, this brother and sister team. And then, then they brought on their whole freaking family, the Osmonds. Oh, yeah. But there was just like this weird. It was just weird. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And maybe a brother and sister thing. Yeah, yeah. It just it, it I, always veers towards weird. And it, I have I have no. Uh, the Osmonds are so out of my wheelhouse. Oh, I love like, the Osmonds. Love them. That's where I got to you know, the 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 uh, Marie, uh, the Donnie and Marie shows where I got to know Shields and Yarnell. Oh, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm a little bit country. I'm a little bit rock and roll. No, that's the theme song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Greece was originally released in the United States on June 16th, 1978, and was an immediate box office success. I was in Texas visiting my grandma, and oh, wow. this poor kid. There's nothing to do with my grandparents. It was like this little dairy farm in the middle of nowhere in Bump F, Texas. And, you know, we'd go down to the the pond and shoot snapping turtles so they wouldn't eat the fish. Or we would tend to the cows or I'd play with the barn cats. But there was this guy that helped out on the farm, this kid. He must have probably been like 15 or so. But to me, he was like, yeah, man. But he would take me out shooting. He took me out shooting a shotgun. I got blown on my butt because the kickback was so much. Right. But uh, he ended up taking me to Greece, taking me into town. Oh, really? To the, to, nice. To the one theater in the little town. Wow. And we saw Greece, and I L O V E D'd it. Uh-huh. In its opening weekend, the film grossed almost nine million dollars in eight hundred and sixty-two theaters in the United States and Canada, ranking at number two behind Jaws two at the box office for the weekend. Jaws two wasn't as bad as all the other Jaws movies. <laughs> Despite losing the opening weekend, it topped the box office the following weekend with a gross of seven point eight million dollars and set a record gross in its first nineteen days with forty point two million dollars. Yeah, it was a juggernaut. It, it word of mouth, huge. After 66 days, it had grossed $100 million to become Paramount's second highest grossing film behind The Godfather and ended its initial run with a gross of $132 million, $132.4 million, which made it the highest grossing film in 1978. Crazy! It's insane. In the United States and globally, it became the highest grossing musical ever at the time, eclipsing the 13-year-old record held by The Sound of Music with a worldwide gross of $341 million. I am 16 going on 17. That's just crazy. Uh, it was re-released May 18th, 1979 in 1,248 theaters in the United States and Canada, except for the New York City area where it opened a week later. Paramount's biggest ever saturation release at the time, grossing $4.5 million in its opening weekend. They would re-release movies quite a bit because there wasn't really video back then. Right. And, right. you know, they, they would knew to, it would make more money. Yeah, they tried to... And also, around that time, or at least not too uh, long before that, Movies could run for like 12 months. You know? yeah, yeah. A movie would stay in the theater for a really long time. The movie played for four weeks and was then paired with the PG-rated version of Saturday Night Fever in late June. Yeah. That was also something they did. They would do double features. They would bring movies back and do double features. Yeah, and then recut them. Yeah, yeah, make them PG-rated. Um, during the reissue, it overtook The Godfather as Paramount Pictures' highest-grossing film. 
It was re-released in March 1998 for its 20th anniversary, where it grossed another $28 million in the United States and Canada. People love them some grease. It remained the highest-grossing live-action musical until 2012, when it was overtaken by Les Mis. And it remained the U.S. champion until 2017, when it was surpassed by the live-action Beauty and the Beast. I am not a fan of Les Mis. I am sorry. I I liked... That is one of the few musicals I've seen, like, stage production. Mm -hmm. And the stage production I saw was amazing. But it was mostly because of the sets. Like, they had a giant revolving set. And so, like, it was... It was cool. Not a fan of the music. Jean Valjean stole some bread at him. Yeah. And then he... And then a whole revolution happened. Yeah. And then Russell Crowe tries to get him for stealing that bread. You stole the bread. I stole the bread. Grease received mostly positive reviews from film critics and is considered by many as one of the best films in 1978. Gene Siskel gave the film three stars out of four, calling it exciting only when John Travolta is on the screen, but still recommending it to viewers, adding four of its musical numbers are genuine showstoppers that should bring applause. He gave it three out of four stars, but called it only exciting when John Travolta is on the screen. Whatever. There's no rhyme nor reason to this man. No, I know. Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times disagreed with a negative review. I didn't see Grease on stage, but on the testimony of this strident, cluttered, uninvolving, and unattractive movie as it is in the 50s, maybe the last innocent decade allowed to us played back through a grotesquely distorting 70s consciousness. Okay, so he just didn't get the movie. Well, whatever. I barely understood what he wrote. Uh, Yeah. The film was nominated for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards, Hopelessly Devoted to You, by John Farrar. I think a lot of people, too, had, because they snuck a lot of adult stuff into this goofy movie, like the oh, pregnancy. Yeah. Well, and, and like, we, I didn't even talk about the fact that um, it, during Grease Lightning, when he's running around with the cellophane, that was totally a reference to how guys in the 50s would wrap their wieners in cellophane while they're having sex. Ugh. It was, they used them as condoms. It didn't work. Yeah, obviously. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, like, that was stuff that they were told not to do, and they added it anyway. Right. It was just the, they had a lot of uh, subversive moments yeah. in it that they yeah. snuck in. That was great. That makes it a more interesting film. The soundtrack album ended, ended 1978 as the second best-selling al- album of the year in the United States, exceeded only by another soundtrack album from the film Saturday Night Fever, which also starred Travolta. Yeah, it was all over the place, yeah, man. The two top-selling albums of the year. It's crazy. I didn't sing on Saturday Night Fever, though. Let's be honest. Oh, no, he didn't sing on it. I was yeah. a BGs. But he was in it. I, I mean, was in it. I dance. I got a dance, Dad. Grease 2 premiered in 1982 and stars Maxwell Caulfield and Michelle Pfeiffer. While several of the Rydell High staff characters reprised the roles, the sequel focused on the latest class of graduating seniors, hence most of the principals from Greece not appearing. Right. Patricia and they did a, a double-do switcheroo. Yeah. And made her the... Yeah, the bad, the bad one. The greaser yeah. and him, the ooh, proper primmy. Yeah. I never, I never, ever got Caulfield. Uh, Maxwell Caulfield, God bless you. I just didn't get you, man. Yeah. They tried. They tried to make you a star so hard. <laughs> Patricia Birch, the original film's choreographer, directed the sequel. The original musical's co-creator, Jim Jacobs, was not involved in the making of Grease 2 and has disowned the film. I disown it! Uh, according to Didi Khan, in an interview on KGOAM, there were plans for a sequel named Summer School, distinct from Grease 2, but Paramount Pictures later nixed the idea. Weird. I wonder why. The idea out grew out of Coach Calhoun's line, See you in summer school! To Putsy before he's hit with a pie in the carnival scene at the end. Nice. Um, yeah, it would have been funny. I mean, it would have made more sense. Hey, you know who hit him in the face with the pie at the end? 
Eddie Deason. Eddie Deason. I did it. Hey, you got a great arm. Yeah, I do. In 2002, Dee Dee Khan, Olivia Newton-John, and John Travolta were all pushing to have a Grease 3 produced, which would focus on the original cast and characters many years later in another decade, like the 70s or the 90s. That sounds cool. But this movie never got beyond the planning stages. On January 31st, 2016, Fox aired a live television added, adapted live television adapted special of the musical using components from both the 1970 film and the original Broadway show. Uh, it starred Julianne Hough, Aaron Tveit, and Vanessa Hudgens. The adaptation received positive reviews, especially for Hudgens, and 10 Emmy nominations. I don't, I think Juliana Huff, isn't she like a dancer for Dancing with yeah. the Stars? Yeah. I don't know who Aaron DeVete is. I don't know who is it. Vanessa Hudgens is very talented. Yeah. She was in those high school musicals. Yeah. yeah. And wasn't she also in that uh, Spring Breakers? Yes. Harmony Corinne so. movie? I think so. Yeah. In March 2019, it was announced that a prequel called Summer Lovin' was in development from Paramount Players. The project would be a joint production collaboration with Temple Hill Productions and Picture Start. John August, who consistently worked with Tim Burton, signed on to serve as screenwriter. Interesting. On October 15th, 2019, it was announced that a musical television series based on Grease titled Grease Rydell High was given a straight to series order by HBO Max. Okay. Annabelle Oakes was set to write the pilot episode and act as executive producer for the series. What's she done? Uh, Oakes has written for the TV show Awkward and Sirens. I don't know if I've Awkward's seen those. from an, an MTV show. It became really big oh. in like 2015. Sirens was a USA show, I think. Uh, wasn't that about uh, it was mermaids? Like, no, I think it was. I think it was about uh, Lady Thieves. Oh, I thought because there was a mermaid show. It might be. It might have been the mermaid show. In 2020, the series title was changed to Grease: Rise of the Pink Ladies. Uh, Rise of the Pink Ladies released ten episodes in spring 2023 before the series was canceled and withdrawn from public availability in June. Yeah, you know, I was gonna watch that show, uh, and then it was gone. Yeah, I mentioned this to a friend last night, and he was like, "What? Yeah, it was really popular." And now you can't watch it. Was it popular? Yeah, it, it, it apparently did, but they canceled. I think it was. I think it has more to do with the strike mm. and with the producers being like, "Well, you can't. If you don't want to do this, you can't have our stuff." Ugh. Like uh, it's more of the execs being kind of babies about stuff and and uh, pulling things off. I'm sure they probably pulled it and did some kind of tax rebate thing. Yeah, you know. Um, that's but that's it. That's it. That's the end of Greece, and uh, it sucks because I did. I actually was kind of curious to watch the show, and now it's gone. Look, Greece came around at the perfect time. Like we've said at the beginning of the show, it it really has all of the same trappings and mistakes that these other failed musicals had. Yeah. But it's also it came at the perfect time because you have Happy Days. Yeah. You just recently had uh, American Graffiti. Yeah. And the whole fifties nostalgia. Boom was was happening, Huge, yeah. And they made the incredibly smart uh, decision of putting in old people, old people <laughs> stars from an 50s, earlier time, fifties, like Judy Goodman stars, and Alice yeah. Ghostly, and and uh, and it just it, it just shows that timing is very important with these things. I think the the factor between this being successful and the other movies this month not is the nostalgia factor about the 50s. Sure. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, well, and all these other movies that we talked about kind of missed their opportunity. Yeah. Like Xanadu, if it came out a few years earlier in the height of the disco yeah. era, in the yeah. roller disco era, it probably would have done great. Yeah. Sergeant Peppers. And if it, you know, if it... It, not made. <laughs> it would have well, been great. Sergeant Peppers, are, Sergeant Peppers is the definition of whimsy. It yeah. is the most whimsical film that yeah. you will see. But it's not. It's 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 not as good as Grease. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But it's not a bad movie. No, like I don't no. think. 
any of these movies, all of these movies have something redeeming about them. Yeah. Even The Wiz. Uh, yeah. Which I know you can't stand The Wiz. I, I'm not saying I can't stand it. It's definitely my least favorite this movie. Sure, but yeah. all I love all of these movies. Yeah. I love them all because they all represent a different part of my life. Sure. And, and I saw them at the right time for me as a right. young boy when I had no discernible taste. And I would just love anything. Yeah. Uh, but because of that nostalgia, I still love all of these movies today. Yeah. And it was such a joy to watch all of them. And I honestly, I haven't seen any of them this century, probably. Yeah. Not even Greece. And it's been a long... Because like, I've never loved Greece the way that you love Greece. Yeah. Like, yeah. I always liked Greece, And I loved it when it came out. It had the soundtrack, mm-hmm. of course. But it wasn't one of those movies that stuck with me like these other ones. Yeah. And I, for me, it was one of those that was on, like, cable all the time. Yeah. Like, it was on Cinemax or Showtime or whatever when I was growing up all the time. I can guarantee you that 99% of the people listening to this show right now, at one point or another, during karaoke, got up with all of their friends and sang, <laughs> was yeah. it love at first sight? Summer oh, loving. Oh, Summer oh, loving. Oh, yeah. But, you know. No, that's a, yeah, that's a huge. Because you get your group of guys yeah. and you get your group of girls and it's like the greatest uh, you, karaoke it's, song It's a good duet song. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. Yes, I have seen that happen a number of times. Oh, I've been a part. Yeah. Yeah, very, very several times being a, in a group grease yeah. sing. Sing off, but uh, but it endures because the beauty about having films that are period pieces is they're evergreen because right. they're never going to spoil because right. they're uh, of a time, you know. And the fifties is probably the most nostalgic time that we had, oh, yeah. and at least back yeah. then. I mean, everybody wanted to return to the fifties, except for women and well minorities, because they yeah. know what the fifties were like. Not good, <laughs> but. There is this this fairy tale nostalgia about that time right, that is right. mostly brought on by the shows of the time, like Father Knows Best yeah, or yeah. Leave It to Beaver or any of these shows that just show these perfect families living in these perfect yeah. suburban things. And so because of this false mask that was put on by media, everybody feels like, oh, the 50s was such a simpler time and everybody was nice. And everybody yeah. was Andy Griffith and Mayberry. Yeah. But it it wasn't. But uh, but I get it, you know. There wasn't. There's no really nostalgia uh, fixture for for the other musicals no. that we watched this month. No, except no. maybe Beatles nostalgia. But if that is, but like, he, but that was that it was like eight years after they broke up. And like it, it wasn't. I mean, and to true Beatles fanatics, then it was yeah. blasphemy to right, have right. the Bee Gees. That's again timing, you know. Yeah, yeah. But. But this movie is just a celebration of joy. It is. It is. With some stuff, you know, it's like it tries to put in, you know, with, with uh, Rizzo getting pregnant. Yeah. You know, yeah. but at the end it's like, I didn't. And they're like, okay, yeah. let's Yay. go laugh again. Now we can yeah. do it. But yeah. Maybe they learned their lesson to not skip the condom. Don't don't use a condom that's eight years old. Yeah, that, that totally <laughs> fell apart. And don't wrap your wiener in saran and wrap, oh my people. God, that's don't. not going to work. That doesn't work. It does not work. But it's it's such a fun film. If you haven't seen it, I don't know who you are because <laughs> everybody I know is. It's it, it's such a great. It has catchy soundtrack. It's just everybody. They're just having so much fun. Exactly, and it's not. It's it's a more organic type of musical because it seems like they're singing in places where they kind of would sing in real life. I, this is the funny is that when it started, Jim was like, oh, glad it took 30 minutes to get the first song. And it was like, <laughs> well, yeah, because they're not forcing the music into the movie. They weren't. And that was good. But uh, and the music is good and the acting is good. And it's just a, a and God, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John were just amazing. Oh, and magnetic. he yeah. was he, you know, he's such a 
I it's he's gone through so many different incarnations of his career that you forget that he was a song and dance man. Yeah, and then yeah. he's had so many different incredible yeah. periods of life. I mean, the guy is is like Lazarus. Yeah, with his career, you <laughs> he know, is, he is. Uh, and good for him. Look, yeah, you know, the guy's been through a lot of tragedy in his life, and same with Olivia Newton John, and uh, it's just really. They seemed like they were friends after. And they yeah, did another they did, movie yeah, afterwards. Yeah. It was a huge bomb. No, but they, they stayed close. I mean, or, you know, close being as close yeah. as you can in Hollywood. But, like, they, they, they enjoyed each other. They liked each other. So yes. It's yeah. on HBO Max or Look, on Max. Like, it's there. You can even do a double feature if you want with Grease and Grease 2. <laughs> Grease 2 is not a great movie, but it's got Michelle Pfeiffer. There's yeah. some people in it. There's at least something to watch. Right. And you right. get to see the beginnings of a, a an illustrious career with Miss Pfeiffer. Right. And you get to see the beginnings of a not so illustrious career with Mr. <laughs> Crawfield. But uh but yeah, just give it a look if you haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it in a while, do yourself a favor. It's going to put it, you in a good mood. Give it a rewatch, definitely. Yeah. Good times. We'll be back next week. We're going to do some stepdads. Oh yeah, we'll tell you what we're watching, what we're playing. <laughs> do some stepdads. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> yeah. So if you're a stepdad and yeah. you want to be done on Here the it show, comes. Just Here send it us comes. an email, and we'll do you. Uh, I'm not going to do that. See you next week. Welcome to the Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And that's a car. <laughs> <Okay>. Welcome. <laughs> Marsha Mitzman is Gavin. Nope. Oh, Marsha Mitzman Gavin is Rizzo. Now return to your regularly scheduled programming, Barney Miller, already in progress. <laughs>